If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Ben, and I'm a pastor here at Grace. I'm delighted to be here uh, worshiping with you. Took a walk this morning on the spring day. It refreshed my soul. And I said, I get even more. I get to come and worship with God's people today. And so I'm glad to be here refreshing ourselves in the the truth of God's love for us, reminding ourselves of what is true. Uh, What I'm going to do now is I'm just going to, before we turn our attention to God's word, let's just take a moment of silence. Let's pull together our distracted souls, our scattered senses, before we turn to God's word. Let's take a beat and then I'll pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, to come here and to open your word, uh, we're grateful for the opportunity uh, that we have to hear from you. Uh, We're also aware of our significant need of you. And so would you come by your spirit and attend these words and make them a source of life. And like spiritual food for us that would feed our hungry hearts with your love and your goodness. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, our scripture text today is one verse. We'll be popping around in the book of Proverbs, but for our scripture reading, just one verse. From Proverbs chapter 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we've been in a series on wisdom, and we've been saying before you can become wise, you need to learn to spot foolishness. You need to learn to name it, see it, especially where it's present in your own life. It's one of the reasons why the book of Proverbs was written, to help us to identify the foolishness that exists in all of our hearts. And one of the interesting ways that it helps us to do that is that it gives different kinds of foolishness a name. In its pages, we meet the scoffer and the stubborn one and the simple one. And uh, today we meet the sluggard. And as the readers of fairy tales can tell you, knowing the true name of your enemy, uh, be it a troll, 
or a witch or a demon or a brand of foolishness, that can put you at a great disadvantage to not know their name. But learning their name can give you power to set you free. And so today we're going to learn about the sluggard. And we're going to be able to name where this might appear in our lives. The first place that the sluggard is mentioned, and that's always a good place to start, but the first place the sluggard is mentioned in Proverbs is Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. I'll just read it to you. Pretty famous text here. It says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber. A little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. Well, apparently there's a lot that the sluggard can learn from the ant. And what are they supposed to notice about the ant? It is the ant's industry. Their self-motivated work discipline, and foresight, which gets them where they want to be when winter comes. No, they don't need anyone to tell them to pick up their room or to go out and gather clothes, uh, gather their food without any chief, officer, or ruler. They have an innate sense of industry diligence. They know what's required to thrive in the varied seasons of life. There's a time of preparation, a time to gather, a time to rest, and they do it. And as a result, they thrive. And apparently that kind of industry, self-motivation, is what the sluggard lacks. The ant is out working. The sluggard is still in bed. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Notice that it's not one day of hitting the snooze button. That would be understandable. It's how long, O sluggard, This has been a habitual way of living. It ends by saying this. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. This situation, this didn't happen in one day. The sluggard's life wasn't hindered by giving in to some heinous sin one time. It was hindered by a thousand small surrenders 
in shallow directions. If the wise is, goes the long haul in the, in the right direction, the sluggard takes a thousand small steps into shallow spaces. It's just a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. It's by inches and minutes that the opportunity slips away. It's not bold. It's not clear refusal of what's right or of God's will. It's more deceptive than that. It's a combination of small surrenders that add up over time. It's more like a slow drift away from where you're supposed to be. For the gentleman looking at the ant, it's the snooze button. But you don't have to love sleep to be a sluggard. What the snooze button is to the sluggard, the second nightcap every night is to this fellow over here. Or to what this video game is to this person over here. Or just to what our flashing screens are to so many of us in our dopamine-addicted culture. It's whatever little thing we turn to time and time again as a means of escaping the world, our duties, and responsibilities. Keeping those things at bay. Whatever distracts us from what God is calling us to do, to be, and to become. Heck, what distracts us from what we want to do and to be and to become. Which means that in the life of the sluggard, there is often a light melancholy because in their heart of hearts, they want more. Proverbs 13.4 The soul of the, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Notice the desire here. A, des- a want but it's not strong enough to do what's required to achieve the thing. A sluggard wants good, but won't do what securing good requires. Like a person desiring harvest, but won't adjust their schedules to plant. The fool craving good relationships, but remaining sleepy and neglectful towards the wiser things that good relationships are made of. The person who wants more of God. You just want to be holy. But time and time again refuses the kind of action that holiness requires now 
let me just say it, because people's legalism radar gets up whenever we talk about working hard and stuff. But listen, y'all, we're saved by grace through faith in our Savior. That is true. But no one stumbles into being a holy person. When it comes to becoming like Jesus, being a godly friend, having a rip-roaring prayer life, being a Christ-like spouse, a godly father, a just person, a godly mom, a faithful church member, a loving neighbor, that takes grace-motivated Gospel-driven, diligent work. And the sluggard is only interested in pressing snooze. In the second drink. In time on the toilet with their iPhone or whatever. Come on, parents, you know that that's true. I'm in the bathroom! My kids are outside, but I'm just... I'm not really doing anything except looking at their cell phone. What's at the heart of the, so you want it, but you're not willing to do it? What's at the heart of it? Fear. Proverbs 26.13 says, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the street. Proverbs 22.13 says, The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. For the sluggard, there's something that's blown out of proportion in their life that's causing fear. People's opinions. Catastrophizing what failure might mean in this particular situation. Just knowing what hard work will be required. I don't know. Just the uncertainties of life. Looking into our future and saying, there's a lion in the streets. I'm not going outside today. The Old Testament example is the the Israelites, after they're taken out of slavery, been liberated, freed, by God, by His abundant power and rescue to live abundant lives in His promised land. And they're headed there through the wilderness. It's been a long time since they've been home and some neighbors have moved in. But the Lord has said, fear not. Move into the promised land. Never mind Those enemies or neighbors, I will be with you. Leave your old life behind. Strike out in faith. Turn your face and embrace the new life that I'm giving you. Don't be afraid to take hold of it. I have redeemed you and I'm going to be with you every step of the way. And what happens? They come back and they say, there's giants in the land. Lions in the street. Never mind what God has done. Their fears grew. I'm reminded of being a parent. 
And uh, it's when your kid wants to jump off the diving board. And so you get into the water first. And you're there. And they have like all the gear. They already, they have a life jacket on. They are, you are there. It is shallow. Nothing is going to happen to that child. And all you want is for them to risk. And the first couple times when they're like, I need to go to the snack shack or I gotta go to the bathroom. I can't do it yet or whatever. And you just, they walk away for fear. And you just, there's something in the parent's heart that goes, I hope they jump at some point. I don't want them to be the adults that, because there's, who never jump, who never risk, who never learn. And you're just right there. It's like God is in the water of your life saying jump. Jump with your vocations. Jump with that relationship. Jump with your finances. Jump with your spiritual life. Jump in. I'm right here. I want you to have abundant life. The life that I've secured to you. And we're like, I'm going to go to the snack shack. I'm going to go get over here. I got to go to the restroom. A little slumber. A little folding of the hands to rest. If that's the Old Testament example, the New Testament example is really the story of the rich young ruler. I used to think that that story was a story about greed, but it's really a story about sluggardliness and sloth. You know the story. A rich young man comes to Jesus and asks him the requirements for discipleship, what you have to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus sees that this man is too fond of his possessions. So one of the things he says is you need to sell all of your stuff and come follow me. And Luke says in his gospel that this individual became sad, turned away sorrowful, or as the old King James says, his countenance fell. You see, if it would have been about money, he would have walked away angry, but he walked away sad It's almost as if he knew what Jesus was offering him was a fuller life. But he didn't believe he had what it took to embrace it. And so in sadness, he turned away and chose the less abundant life. Making that change seemed too big. He wasn't up for it, wasn't willing and what was enslaving his heart was fear of missing out fear of losing there's lions in the street and so when you put it all together the sluggard it it isn't garden variety laziness it's more akin to what the ancients used to call acedia it's one of the seven deadly sins more commonly known as sloth. It's this condition that comes upon us when life gets too challenging, when our doubts and fears get too loud, when engagement with God or with another person seems too demanding. And in those moments, 
Sloth offers a kind of morphine to numb the pain. Spiritual sloth is saying, I've really had enough. There's no pressing on because there's giants in the land and it just hurts too much. So I'm not going to get out of my rocker or my recliner or my beanbag chair. Which is sometimes, when you're 40, it's hard to get out of a beanbag chair. Because there are lions in the street. And rather than engage them with God's help, I'm just going to turn over in my bed. My countenance falling. It's the heart posture behind so many of our sins. It lies behind so many people's procrastination problem. Like the fear that your best work isn't good enough, so you stop working to be the best that you can be. It's also behind most people's perfectionism. A fear that your best work isn't good enough, so you can't stop working. You work yourself into the ground, and as a result, your relationships suffer. It's why so many of us live in this fog of lust. And you wait until the house is empty so you can take care of yourself. And you try for years just to say no. And then you wake up one day and you think, oh, my problem isn't first and foremost lust. It's sloth. My problem is that I'm afraid there's, there's giants in the land. I'm actually afraid of the woman or man that God has given me. And rather than be shut down by him or her, I'm going to go to my alternative reality where there are no blemishes. There's never a no. No expectation of chit-chat before or after where no one expects me to pick up my socks or to deal with my heart or to change my mood or to vacuum the floor, where I can just be a blob and get whatever I want. It's looking at your wife or husband and saying, there's giants in the land. There's lion in the street. And it's choosing the less abundant life rather than wrestling with their heart. It's quarreling with your spouse at dinner time and instead of engaging one another and actually working it out, it's being content to head off to the opposite corners of the house for the rest of the night to sulk, finding it easier to maintain that miserable distance rather than doing the hard work of apologizing, understanding, forgiving, and reconciling. It's having a great day yourself and then receiving a a text message from a friend describing some tragedy in their life. They're asking for prayer. The sluggard has the temptation to pretend you didn't receive the text. You don't want to work up the courage and the heart to emotionally engage with them in their sorrow. It's 
working however many hours a week more than you have to because it's easier for you to be at work in the office than for you to be at home to deal with kids and human hearts and the realities of love. It's evenings without number obliterated by television. Evenings neither of entertainment nor of education, just narcoticized defense against life and time and duty. It's saying, who cares? And just giving in to a moment of temptation and receiving momentary pleasure along with the self-hatred that follows because you're weary of the fight unable to imagine another outcome. And after all, it doesn't really matter. And so it takes these forms in our lives. Restlessness. Boredom. Sadness. Listlessness. Distraction. Whatever. Laziness. And overwork. But underneath it all is this fear that leads to a spiritual avoidance, a refusal to engage the pathos of another individual's life or of God's life in us. So to borrow language from the reflection quote on the front of your bulletin, sloth is not fear of manual labor, but of inward transformation. It is not so much shrinking back from toil, but from the call to greatness of soul. So what is the antidote? And I think we find it in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's what's needed to not shrink back from the idea of greatness of soul. It's a hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's to learn to to push back on the shrill and shallow voices and forces in our cult culture that ask us to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we'll die. That invite us to give up on the good life one small surrender at a time. Lent is meant to be a time when we actively fight against that cultural drift that would keep us in the shallows. That's what the spiritual disciplines that surround Lent are all about. We say no to the allure of food and the comfort of it all through fasting. There's at least 30 or so of us in the fasting class doing that. Some of us are saying no to spending and consumerism through almsgiving. Some of us are saying no to the noise and the attention economy by rejecting entertainment through the embrace of silence and prayer and contemplation. And in it all, 
we're creating space in our souls to say yes to Jesus. Cutting out things that have become supports and crutches to us over the years. And taking on embodied material practices that help us create a hunger for Christ. We're saying to God, we understand. (laughs) We've been distracted. We've been numbed out. We've been anesthetized by all this consumption, all this ease, and we've become unfeeling, unhearing, heedless of your voice, but we want you. We don't want alcohol. We don't want TV. We don't want social media. We don't want whatever it is you're giving up for Lent. Those things are fine. They're a part of God's good creation, meant to be enjoyed by some measure, but there comes times where we just confess that some of these things have become crutches and consolations, and so we want to turn from the gift to the source and say, Christ, I want you. I need you. I saw Brian and Debbie Houston come into worship today. There's people who slept in and didn't get here. Brian's body riddled with cancer. In pain. It took him more energy to walk into the doors than you will expend your whole day. And what he wanted to be was here. Because he knows what he needs is the Lord. Worship. Jesus. Come, fill this gaping abyss with your presence. Renew us. Save us. Restore us. Make us new again. We're turning to you again. We push back on the forces that would keep us in the shallows by naming our crutches, by doing something about it, by exercising our wills and our bodies. And we push back on the forces that keep us in fear by exercising our faith in Jesus. The voices that would tell us that your biggest enemies are still out there. That they have not been defeated. That Jesus Christ is not really raised from the dead. That you still need to fear guilt and sin and death. The voices that say that the road is too hard and we are too weak and too tired to be roused to the noble calling that has been given us in Jesus. Voices that call us to shrink back from embracing the immense honor and joy of what it means to be and to become the people of God. Exercising faith, not in ourself, Not in our zeal, but in His zealousness for us. 
As it says in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, He remains faithful. He is no sluggard in His love or care for you. See the Father's commitment in sending His only begotten Son. See the Son turn like flint towards Jerusalem. Carrying the burden of the cross and of your sluggardly heart and all of your sins to suffer for you. Look at the Spirit who raised Him from the dead now at work in your life. Moving you from different degrees of glory to another. Promising to finish the work that He began in us. We are not incapable of change. We are not incapable of following Jesus. He is with us. And our lives are like a great quest. A great adventure. And we're not alone on this quest. Christ has promised to be with us by His Spirit till the end of the age. And the Father pours out His love on you. And Jesus accompanies you. And the Holy Spirit indwells you. And God sits in the water and says, Jump! Remember me. Remember who you are. God didn't make you to think so much about what other people might think of you. You put your best work out there. Sometimes you fail. Sometimes you surprise yourself. There's always room to grow. But you must feel secure enough in Christ to risk. To risk on love. To risk on holiness. To risk on Him. And yeah, that will require bother and hardship and suffering. But it will be good because God is with us. And because where we're going is the promised land. So don't grow weary in doing good, dear ones. In due season we will reap if we don't give up. Set your minds on the things above, not things on earth. Press forward towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Work out your faith with fear and fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. One final illustration. And I pull it out every time I talk about sloth because it's so good. It gives us a picture of what this actually looks like. I'm going to read you a set of journal entries from a man named Samuel Johnson. Samuel Johnson was a Christian, a literary giant of the 18th century. And it tells the story of his fight to wake up a little earlier in the morning. Beginning in 1738, he wrote, O Lord, 
Enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth. 19 years later, 1757. Almighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time misspent in idleness and sin by diligent application of the days yet remaining. Two years later, in 1759, Enable me to shake off idleness and sloth. 1761. I have resolved and resolved again, and I am afraid to resolve again. 1764. My indolence since my last reception of the sacrament has sunk into the grossest sluggishness. My purpose is from this time forward to avoid idleness and to rise early. Five months later, 1764, he resolves to rise early, not later than six if I can. 1765, I purpose to rise at eight. (laughs) Because though I shall not rise early, It would be much earlier than when I now rise, which is often until two. Oh, Samuel. Oh, that one hurts. 1769. I am not yet in a state to form any resolutions. I purpose and hope to rise early in the morning by eight and by degrees at six. 1775. When I look back upon resolution of improvement... And the amendments which have been made, year after year, made and broken, how can I try to resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and despair is criminal. He resolves again to rise at eight, three months before his death. In 1784, I will not despair. Help me. Help me, oh my God. He resolves to rise at eight or sooner to avoid idleness. (laughs) I just love the never quit effort of Samuel Johnson. And maybe that's what it looks like for you. But I think he jumped. He leaped. And so identify. Here's, here's the, the two questions to take with you. What is, what is your snooze button? What is that thing that often draws you away from duty and responsibility? Apply will to, be, to push against that. What's the, and then the second question, what's the fear that keeps you from your calling? And from greatness of soul. Exercise faith in the gospel. Against that. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father. Thank you for your. Vigilance. Your diligence. Your. uh, Steadfastness. Your. You've loved us with all industry. All care. You've worked hard on our behalf. You've carried burdens and suffering. You've worked through hard times. 
And you promised to do that to the very end. And so thank you so much for your vigilant and zealous love for us. And I pray that in uh, secured in that love, acknowledging your presence in our life, your guiding hand, that we would risk again um, to become more and more the people you're calling us to be. So as we exercise our, our wills and as we exercise our faith this Lent, I pray that you would be with us. We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen.